Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. We are continually pressing through this book, this great letter that's been called the greatest letter ever written, and rightly so. And we are in the 13th chapter this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, probably your favorite passage in all of the Scriptures. I'm sure you all have it crocheted on your wall. And so we are going to dive right in and give ourselves to what is actually a very significant passage and one that you maybe have never really considered in context. Um, And so we're going to look this morning at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And before we do, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching and hearing and believing and keeping and doing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every portion of scripture. We thank you for those portions that show us the greatness of your mercy and grace in Christ. And we thank you for those portions that teach us our duty and our responsibility as those who have been redeemed by your son. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would receive these words, not as the words of men, but as they are in truth, the very word of God, which also works effectually in us. We pray that the resurrection power of your son would be behind this. We pray that we would see the relationship of the gospel to every single aspect of our lives. We pray that you would change us and that you would build us up. Oh, our God, we pray that you would increase our faith in your son who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, remember Paul is in the applicatory section that began back in chapter 12, verse 1, and now he says, let every person be in subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever therefore resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad why would you have no fear of the would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you went ahead and you saw the title of this sermon, or you took time to read ahead knowing what the next portion of scripture would be, you might have come here this morning hopeful that you would hear a sermon about the greatness of democracy. You might think that you can't, You would come this morning and you would hear a sermon about the greatness of freedom and living in the freest nation that this world has ever known. You, if you have come with that expectation, will be greatly disappointed this morning. Someone caught me on the way in and they had read ahead and they said to me, are you going to tell everybody to stop writing nasty comments on their Facebook walls 
about political parties. And I said, I might do that. That might be something you hear in this sermon I had not planned to do, but I was thankful for that little nugget before the sermon. Um, this, this portion of scripture is a difficult portion of scripture. It's one that you no doubt have thought about. It's one that some of you have probably studied before, and yet it's one that comes in a very specific context. It comes in the context of the Apostle Paul writing to believers who have been redeemed by Christ, those that he has just told in 11 chapters about all that Jesus has done for them in his death and his resurrection, all that they have in Jesus Christ, all that they have through his blood, how they've been reconciled to God, how they've been brought near through the blood of Jesus, how they've had all their sins forgiven them, how they have eternal life awaiting them, how they've been adopted into God's family, how they've been ushered into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, a kingdom of mercy and grace, a kingdom that where God says where sin abounded, grace did abound much more, through the second Adam, the new head of a redeemed humanity, Jesus Christ. And Paul has been making those applications. And as I've noted in almost every sermon in our time in Romans 12, Paul has been giving these very specific applications. First, he gives that big general principle in verses 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let everything that you do be done as living sacrifices, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so everything else Paul writes after that verse is in light of what Christ has done, in light of the mercies of God, in light of what God has done for you in Jesus, everything else flows and everything else should be done as the gospel shapes our lives to show what is good And what is acceptable to God, what God loves, what God has ordained. Our lives should mirror what God wants his world to look like and his people in this world to look like. And then we notice that Paul warned against being puffed up with pride in verses 3 through 8. And then he made that general application to the whole church to love the members within the church and to love those in the world, even when those in the world hate and persecute you. And then we come to this section, and as you know, there's no chapter divisions in how God ordained the scriptures. There's no verses that the Holy Spirit breathed out. And so this section naturally goes with everything else that has gone before. And yet, for the clarity of us laboring to read it in light of everything that has just come before and the necessity for us to do that, this portion has perplexed commentators for centuries and centuries. Is Paul introducing this for some unbeknownst reason? Is he just bringing this out there undetached from everything else? And I think that what we're going to see this morning is that there's a very, very tight logic to why Paul brings in what he brings in about governments and Christians in light of ruling authorities here and now in the new covenant era spread out under different rules, under different authorities, under different governments. And that what Paul is saying has everything to do with what he's just said. Paul is talking about what the Christian's life should look like in the here and now as he is making his way to glory. And in light of that, I think we need to look at two things this morning as we look at these seven verses. First, we need to consider the need for which Paul wrote this. What was the need behind Paul writing this portion of scripture? What were the purposes behind it? And then secondly, we want to see the substance of what Paul says about those who have been redeemed by the gospel and their relationship to the government. 
Well, notice that when Paul introduces this, he says in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, there are several, there are several reasons why Paul wrote this where he wrote it. One very clear reason and one that maybe you've thought of and someone the other night in our small group pointed it out to us is that the last part of chapter 12, God has said, bless those that persecute you, do good to them. If, you're, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If he's naked, clothe them. Uh, return evil with good. That seems very countercultural. And then Paul injects in there, remember, God has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And remember what the proverb said, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. And so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. And you could hear the objection. Well, Paul, are you saying there is no justice in the here and now? Are you saying that in the here and now, There is no recompense for wrongdoing. I'm just to do good to people that do harm to me. They take my property. They take my livestock. They take whatever else they might take in this context in Rome or in our context today. Is there no recompense? I get that you're saying God has said vengeance is mine. I will repay. I get that there's a judgment day. I get that they are going to get everything coming to them. But is there no recompense now? And I think that one thing Paul might be doing is saying, look, what you need to worry about is being a blessing. You as an individual Christian in this fallen world that is under the sway of the evil one, that is under the sway of all kinds of injustice, all kinds of evil and wickedness and rebellion, you as a Christian are to live as a peacemaker and as one that blesses those that do you harm. And if you're worried about whether there's recompense in this world, know that God has appointed governments in this world, that governments are God-appointed, that governments are necessary. There are even conservative people that I think think government is not necessary. In a fallen world, God deemed it necessary for there to be government. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, there is no authority except from God. God, the infinite God, who has all authority and all power and all might and all dominion, to whom belongs absolute power and authority, the God who is contained in himself that upholds the world by the word of his power, who calls the stars by name, has delegated a little bit of that authority into the governments of this world. And Paul is not here saying that he's done that in democracies or theocracies or oligarchies or totalitarian societies. He doesn't tell us this sort of government is ordained by God and this one is not. What he tells us is that the authorities have been governed by God, that they have been given by God. There was a need for government. I was reading a theologian I really admire and respect. I've had this thought before in the past. He said, you know, people want absolute personal freedom. But if everyone had absolute personal freedom, that would lead to absolute anarchy in society. Governments are necessary to keep sinful people in check. Notice everything that Paul says. He says that in verse 4, the, the, the magistrate is God's servant for good. If you do wrong, he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger. 
who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In the Garden of Eden, there was no need for government. There was government. God was king. Adam was king. Government was bound up in family. It was bound up in the head of, of, of the household because that's all there was. But as soon as sin trickles into the world, there's need for government, and God has ordained government. And God has not just ordained theocracies. It's a huge mistake to say, well, look what he did under the Mosaic economy. Look what he did for Israel. That's what every government should look like. That's not the governments that he ordained prior to that. And we don't see that taught in the New Testament. And Paul is writing this, I would remind you, he's writing this to believers in Rome who are under, presently under the rule of Nero. It was either written in 55 to 57 AD, Nero came to power in 54 AD at 17 years old. It is written at that point in time when the shadow of all the awful things that Nero is about to do is looming over the church and looming over believers there at the center of power of the known world. And it's remarkable to me, it's remarkable to me that Paul writes what he does to believers and to the church that resides there at the center of power of that known world that dominated the rest of the world at a time when it had a leader who was going to be a very ruthless leader. And Paul is telling them, and I quote, he is telling them how to be holy in the midst of the unholy Roman Empire. He is telling them how to be holy in the unholy Roman Empire. He's not telling them in an ideal world, if government worked the way we wanted it to work, that, that then and, and only then would you need to submit to government. Paul is telling these Christians in this church, and he's telling us, and he's told every other church throughout all of church history, throughout all of the New Covenant era, Paul has said, here is what a Christian is to do. God has ordained governments. He has invested his power in them, and we are to submit and be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I think that there is a second reason why Paul writes this. And you have to think about this. If you and I made up a religion, I guarantee you Romans 13, 1 through 7 would not be in our religious book. If I made up a religion... No taxes, and don't tell me what to do. Fair enough? If we make up a religion, there's no taxes. Don't tell me what to do. Here's Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's telling Christians who are living in an ungodly empire as those in Christ and yet those who dwell in Rome. He's telling them, I think for the sake of witness, be subject to governing authorities. He's saying the gospel should so work in your life that even when you don't like things that are going on around you, by your good works, you should be a blessing unto the rulers that God has appointed. It was John Calvin who found himself under equally unjust rulers who, writing to the king of France in the preface to his commentary, said essentially to the king of France, let us live, let Christians live, let us live and we'll bless you. Let us live and we'll do you good. Let us live and we'll bless society. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that, that even though God is king and even though God 
is, is the absolute authority over all things. God has appointed these, these power structures in order to benefit society, to punish evil, to reward good, to ensure that things move and work and function. And within them, even when we don't like them, and even if we don't agree with them, and even when they're ruled by ungodly people, we are to be a witness to the truthfulness of the gospel in our lives. I, I, knew, I knew a man when I was young and... We went to the same church, and he had a Christian radio um, station, and he was sort of one of these anarchists. He he ended up taking his radio station out into international water, didn't pay taxes, homeschooled his kids just to make a point that the government didn't have any say over his life whatsoever in any way whatsoever. That man was disobedient to Romans 13. His, His spirit was disobedient to Romans 13. His life did not show that he was seeking to be a blessing. His life did not show that he was subject to governing authorities. By refusing to pay his taxes, he was showing that he had a rebellious spirit. He was showing that he did not see the wisdom of God in ordaining the government that he had ordained. Now, let me say this, too. I think there's a third reason. And I think this reason maybe hits home more to the absolute purpose why Paul's writing this. You see this in the Jewish church, certainly throughout all of its history, where the Jews didn't want to be ruled by anyone. They said to Jesus, well, under Roman rule, we've never been subject to anyone. That's arguably the funniest thing anybody says in the Gospels. When the Jews in John 8 tell Jesus, we've never been servants to anybody, their whole history had been servitude. They had been (laughs) servants in Egypt. They had been servants under Babylonian rule during the exile. They were presently servants under Roman rule under Caesar. And yet their spirit said, we have never been subject to anyone. And that, my friends, is your heart and my heart by nature. And when you inject that with any kind of privilege, you inject that with religious privilege, the tendency of the old man is to say, no one will tell me what to do. And then when you bring that within the realm of grace and the gospel, and we've come to realize that there's only one king and lawgiver, and that he is the, the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and that he has absolute dominion, that he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and that he has brought us to himself, and he said that he has set you free, that if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. There is a danger There is a danger of saying, I serve no one but God. And God says, oh no, if I've redeemed you, you serve governing authorities. Your spirit may be free. You are free from guilt and condemnation. You are free from the power of sin. You are free from the accusations of the evil one. But listen to me very carefully. You are not free from governing authorities. And if you say you are, you are calling God a liar Because God has so ordered things that he wants his people in this world until that day of consummation to understand that we are to serve those that he has placed in power over us, that we are to be good citizens, that we are to give taxes to whom taxes are due. There's this beautiful picture in Matthew 17, actually. Go ahead and turn there. I want us to read this together. Matthew 17, you'll find that on page 823 if you're using the church bible and there's this little there's this little account that maybe you've overlooked perhaps at times where Jesus is tying together this idea of 
while you are spiritually free in the Son, nevertheless, and you know the parallel passage, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But notice what Jesus says, verse 24 of Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? The temple tax. Now, who's the last person that has to pay taxes? Jesus. Because who is Jesus? God. Who, who dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament? Jesus. In the most holy place. Over the Ark of the Covenant. In between the cherubim of glory. If there's anybody who should be excluded from taxes under an ungodly ruler like Caesar, it's the God-man. Notice, they come. Does your teacher not pay the taxes? He said, yes. And I think there's probably like some uncertainty in his voice. I always like to think he's like, uh, yeah, I hope he does. Because <laughs> we're going to have a problem if not. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others, from servants? Who, who do they take taxes from? Their sons? Do they tax their own sons? Or do they tax servants? And the, uh, the logical answer, of course, is they tax servants. They don't tax their own sons. You don't make your sons pay rent until they're like 30, maybe 25. <laughs> Generally, you don't tax your son. You, you tax your servants. And then notice Peter answers correctly. He says, from others, from servants. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Jesus has just said, he is the son Peter is a son because Peter's been adopted into Jesus's family. The sons are free. Jesus has essentially said there's a spiritual principle that should eliminate Christians from paying taxes. If you're like, wait a minute, I'm very confused. I thought Jesus said give. He will, notice, but he gives that principle. The sons are free. If you're in Christ, you've been set free. Your spirit's free. You belong to your father. I'll never forget I was walking with Stephen Birch as a new Christian on, on Sea Island before they had made it impossible to get on Sea Island, um, unless you knew someone. And we were walking on these beautiful grounds um, that had just been perfectly manicured. And, and Stephen said, Nick, one day, this is all going to be ours. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he, was like, he was like, my father owns this. He was right. Who owns the cloister? Did Bill Jones own the cloister back in the 90s? No, God does. Everything's God's. And if you're a son, everything's yours. And you've been set free. And yet, notice what Jesus says. Jesus said the sons are free, however, not to offend them, not to give offense. Go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish, the fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. So Jesus says there is a principle of blessing even ungodly society. Caesar was ungodly. Listen, Jesus subjected himself not just to taxes. Jesus subjected himself to the unjust judgment of the unjust Pilate and Herod. Have you ever thought about that? And there in John's gospel in chapter 18, in the same breath almost in which Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, which means that he shouldn't be there subject to that. And which means by nature, he shouldn't have to subject himself to that. He is the son of God. And yet for redemption's sake, for your sake, for the good of all mankind, Jesus put himself under an ungodly government 
put him under self under an unjust judge in order to redeem us. And in the same breath in which he said, my kingdom's not of this world, he said to Pilate, who said to him, don't you know what I can do to you? Don't you know the power that I have over you? Jesus said, you would have no power at all unless it had been given to you from above. And in that statement, Jesus has said that God gave Pilate legitimate governing authority even over the eternal son of God in his incarnate state for our redemption. Now, Jesus gives us that principle, doesn't he, that we give taxes to whom taxes are due. And and he takes the coin and he says, whose image and inscriptions on it. And they say Caesar's. And he says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have the image of God renewed in you. You are the image of God by nature. All men are. And in Christ, you are having that image renewed. And that means the totality of your life is due to God. God's image is on you. And yet, Jesus says, living in this world under governments, you are to give to rulers what is due. And that means, and here's the hard rub, you may not like 25% taxes or 35% taxes or 75% taxes, as is the case in France. And yet Jesus does not put a limit on how much tax a ruler can take. There are attempts to finagle out of this by going back to the Old Testament. They fail miserably. Jesus does not say when you like it. I want to read a quote to you. Sinclair Ferguson says, Your calling is to serve Christ in the world that is not in the world that you would like it to be. Your calling is to serve Christ in the world that is, not in the world that you want it to be. He goes on to say, I hear people all the time saying, but what if, what if? He said, when did if ever happen in your life? What if the government does this? When did that ever happen in your life? You know, I do think that our danger as Americans living in, you know, the greatest time of freedom and bounty and blessing that this world has ever known in its fallen condition have a peculiar danger, especially as Christians, that we do not read the Bible anachronistically through the lens of all of our perceived uh, rights and, and privileges. There is a real danger to that. You know what? I actually think that when most people say, well, I'm unhappy about this and this and this and this in government, what they're really saying is I don't want any government at all. And that there can be a subtle, there can be a very subtle, a very nuanced rebellion lying in the heart. Paul actually says in Galatians, do not use liberty as a cloak for covetousness, but through love serve one another. Ferguson in that sermon will go on to say, um, I get weary of hearing people complain about the government they have when they're doing nothing to benefit the society in which they live. Because that's what Paul's teaching in Romans 13. What are you doing to benefit the society in which you live? Now, let's look briefly then at the second point, the substance of what Paul's writing. Paul is saying, be a blessing. Paul is saying, do good. Paul is saying, benefit society. The point of taxes is so that you have roads and that you have societies and that things get done and you have all the accoutrements and luxuries of life. And and we don't get to say, well, I don't like them using my tax money over here. They'll answer to God for that. On judgment day, whatever... The taxes are used for, you will not be responsible for that. 
If governments ask you to do evil, to blatantly sin against God, of course you disobey governments. If in China, for instance, they tell you you have to kill a child, of course you disobey governments. When there are clear, when there are clear power plays that try to force people to disobey the moral law of God, you disobey the government. But when the government asks you to do things that are lawful and that you just don't like, you do them. And notice what Paul says. Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so there's a resisting God that lies behind. We have to try to, to the best of our ability, we have to try to look past the government that is and see God's government behind that. And when we do, we will, in no matter what government we live in, we will say, I want to be the best Christian I can be in this government. And I'll tell you this. Some of the finest Christians on the planet are not living in democratic republics. They are not living in even socialist nations. They are living under totalitarianism. They are living under fascism. They are living under communism. And they would put every one of us in this room to shame with their testimony. And it's a shame that I even have to say it that way to us. Because we have so imbibed this idea of my rights and my freedom and my prerogative. And then, like I said, a subtle form of pushing back. We need to adopt the spirit of John Calvin to the king of France. Let us live and we'll do you good. Let us live and we'll bless you. Give taxes. Notice that's the big one. Notice verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I think that there's a heart issue here too. Notice that Paul doesn't say, give them the taxes with a bitter and angry heart. Notice that he brings it back to the heart motive. And what enables us to respect and honor political leaders that we don't like Remember I said in the sermon last week, you don't have to like everybody in the fellowship. You have to love them. I I think I'm right about that. You don't have to like everybody. You have to love them. You don't have to like political leaders and magistrates, but you have to love them and honor them and respect them. And that's everywhere taught in scripture. Turn over to 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. Timothy is dealing with an issue, I think, in which some of the Jewish false teaching that's kind of infiltrated the church has an anti-authority purpose to it. And that's why I think you find three times in Paul's letters these references to praying for kings and those in authority and all rulers and respecting them and honoring them because the false teachings coming in saying, you don't have to respect and honor these people. You don't have to honor them. Jude will pick up on this, that false teachers despise authority. They despise authorities that God's instituted. And Paul is everywhere saying, respect them, honor them. And notice... In 2 Timothy, and there's a play on words there, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, um, establish that good confession. Like Jesus, who when he stood before Pontius Pilate, made that good confession. It's actually remarkable. It seems almost out of place in the pastoral epistles. Why mention Jesus 
before Pontius Pilate because Jesus is the role model, because Jesus is Savior and Jesus is example. And what Jesus does is he models for you how you ought to speak to rulers and authorities. He doesn't speak demeaningly to Pilate. He had every right to wipe Pilate out as the Son of God, but he, he, he made that good confession. And if you want to fight, fight the good fight of faith, Paul says. Fight to have a good conscience before all men. Fight to make sure that your lives are in accord with your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Paul says that. Now, there's that sticky question. I'll end with this because I know it's, there, I'm sure there's five or six questions that are burning in your mind. One might be, what ought to be the relationship between the church and the state? Well, I'd first say that the state has no right to control the church. The church has one king and one head who is Jesus Christ. And, and the church in the New Testament is never shown to be that which controls the state. That started with Constantine and the awful effects of church and state coming together. In every case in the New Covenant era has ended miserably. The apostles didn't teach that the church are to rule the state. The Roman Catholic Church for a century insisted that they must rule the state. And so while the state is not to rule the church. The church is not to rule the state. God has kept those two separate in the new covenant era. Nevertheless, the church and believers have every right by doing good to bring influence and change and every right as citizens to do the hard work of blessing and doing upright things and upright tactics and being a blessing unto others and being an example to others. And I want to read to us some words. I think that these are fitting for us to maybe walk away with. Uh, Charles Colcock Jones, who was a great Southern Presbyterian theologian and a member of Midway Congregational Church just down the street, said this about the church and believers involved in political progress and hoping to see change. He said, progress may be upward and onward and peaceful. Modifications and even changes in the system, which justice and mercy may require, may be happily affected by the tranquil yet powerful and conservative influences of the gospel. The gospel will certainly improve this. I would remind you of what Stephen Birch said, that if the gospel took lives in people's hearts, you'd have less abortions, you'd have less violence in the home, domestic, domestic violence, debt. You would have transformed lives by the power of the gospel. And Jones says the gospel certainly would improve this as it will every other defective form of government in the world. The work of the church as she stands connected with this and every other form of government is to, in the words of our Lord Jesus, preach the gospel to every creature. The work of the church is to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven and in the words of our Lord Jesus, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. In the performance of this duty, blessed be God, the church will ever find her happiness, her prosperity, and her peace. I want to make a couple applications as we close. The only way that you will ever see a life that is willing to obey the Lord and what he says in Romans 13 is if you are in Jesus Christ. If you understand that he is the alone Savior, that you have cast yourself on him, that you are living in union with him, that you are seeking him, that you are seeking things above, that you realize this is not your home, that here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come, 
that you live as a pilgrim and a stranger in union with Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and running with endurance the race set before us, and saying with the Apostle Paul, the things that are behind me I forget. I press forward to the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, lay, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. And that is the MO of the Christian. That is the mode of operation. The Christian is one that knows that they're, they're moving through this world, that this is not their home, that they're not trying to fix everything to accommodate their own interest. As Ferguson said, you are called to serve Christ where you are, not in the world that you want it to be. And the only way we can do this is if we know Jesus Christ. And those that don't know Jesus Christ are going to be those that talk far more about politics than the gospel. And you know you've met those people in the church. They're going to talk far more about politics than they are about the cross. They're going to talk far more about politics. Here's your Facebook wall plug. They are going to speak more on their Facebook wall about everything under the sun than they're going to talk about the Lord Jesus who is risen and reigning and ruling graciously and mercifully through the preaching of the gospel. And that's a mark, and it may be a painful mark to some of you. But that's a mark that you understand what your place is in this world, what your role is, the way a husband and a wife have roles, the way children are told to honor their parents. It's, it's the Christian's role in this world. Secondly, I want to encourage you to have a mind that seeks to bless others, that seeks to do good in society, that seeks to bring change peacefully, in tranquility, happily. These are some of the adjectives or adverbs that, that Jones used. Peacefully and tranquilli- tranquilly in this world. I want to make a third observation. Pay your taxes. I don't know if any of you need to hear that, but that seems to be a big thing for Jesus and Paul to make that point. Pay your taxes. Um, tax evasion's bad. Even if God hasn't ordained it, give to God what is God's. Give generously in the church. Be a blessing in the church. Be a blessing in the world. One reason I'll close with this thought, I'm happy about having preached this sermon, is if any administration somehow happens on my nobody site of audio, they'll hear this. And they'll hear me saying to a congregation, Be a good citizen. Pray for your leaders. Respect them. Honor them. Give to them what they ask of you, provided they're not asking you to sin. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us hearts that are humble and submissive to you, hearts that love your authority over us through the Lord Jesus who love that you are a God who is head over all things and that you have delegated authority both in your church and in governments and in families, that you would help us to see the beauty of government, that you would make us a people that pray for our governments, that pray for our leaders. We do pray this morning that you would grant redeeming grace to all of our elected officials. We pray that you would grant us hearts that do not murmur and complain but hearts that seek to do good and that submit to the ordinances of man for the Lord's sake. Father, have mercy on us in this area of our life. We pray that there would be much gospel grace and transformation there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.